Good morning, my name's Peter Milliken, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if I haven't met you before, I'd just like to say hello and a very warm welcome to anyone who might be visiting and joining us anew this morning. Uh, I am the newest on staff, um, but for some reason they just keep getting me to preach and Pete sits there and does nothing. Um, So this is the last week though, and he's back on next week. Uh, Recently, my wife and I have purchased a house here in Toowoomba which is uh, awesome. Well, we thought it was awesome, and then you realize there's all these renovations that need to happen before you can move in. And what happens with renovations is it starts small, and then as you do that small little renovation, you notice other things, and you think, well, while I'm here doing this, I may as well go on with that. And then while you're doing that, you see something else, and you have to make more decisions, and you're making decision after decision after decision. You're choosing paint color, and tile color, and and splashback color, and is it splashback or backsplash? Splashback, right. Splashback. In America, legitimately, it's called backsplash. And so I just get confused between the two. Uh, I was telling a friend about this, and I said, yeah, we chose tiles for the backsplash. And he said, backsplash? That's what you get when you pee at the urinal. <laughs> and um, so it's splashback, splashback here in Australia. But you're choosing paint colour and tile colour and tile size and tile texture and what colour grout do you want in that and it just goes on and on and then you get to flooring and it's do you want carpet, do you want vinyl planking, do you want wood floors, it just keeps going, going and it is all consuming and then you add on top of that you, uh, when you buy a property you have uh, insurance you've got to take care of, you've got to go to the bank, you've got to check your interest rates You've got to hand in all the paperwork. They want to know who you are. They want to know your blood type, your criminal history, uh, where you went to school. Did you get the paddle? Yes, I did. Um, all those sorts of things, right? And, and it just becomes so consuming. I found myself just thinking about the house 24-7. The first time we, first night and, and that we started doing renovations, uh, my wife and I woke up the next morning and was like, oh, how did you sleep? And we both said, terrible. We were so tired and yet we couldn't switch our brain off because we're thinking about all the things that we have to do around the house. And maybe you can relate to that, maybe you can't, but uh, it just became such a focus. And we can get there like this with all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be the house, but uh, some of you can see this in your life. You, You grew up and you graduated high school and you you got your first car and you loved that car and you, you polished that car and then uh, you found somebody who you were you know, attracted to and you started dating them and you married them and then you bought a house together and then you started progressing in your career and you put a lot of time and effort into that and then you had some kids and the kids needed attention and you sent them to school and you wanted them to go to the right school and so you put time and effort into figuring out what school they should go to and then you got a little bit more money and you said it's time to upgrade the car and so you upgraded the car and you got a second car because you both need a car now and then the kids are in sports and they've got extracurricular activities and so you take them to their extracurricular activities and you get on with that and then the house isn't big enough and so you have to get a bigger house and so you upgrade the house and then you've got to fill that big house with things so you get more furniture am I making sense are you hearing me this is life right and what happens is or what can happen is this becomes our focus and and those things are right and good and there's nothing wrong with those things in of themselves but if that becomes our purpose 
If this is what we, we think that our, our existence here on life on earth is, is all about, is to, to get these things and, and to kind of get more things and bigger things and nicer things and then, you know, get to a point where our super is full and we can retire and take those last 10, 15, 20 years and relax, get away from the kids... You know, have a nice house that doesn't get ruined by the kids. Go on some trips and just see out our days in peace and prosperity and modern luxury. That's the Australian dream, right? That's what we're all shooting for. That's what we're told we should be shooting for. But I don't think that's the purpose of our existence. I don't think that is what God has for us. I don't read that in, in his scriptures of this is how we're to live once we've found Jesus. And I get it because there's days where I just want to be comfortable. I just want it to be easier. I want to have some nicer things. I want to have some bigger things. And I want to, I want to be less busy. And I don't want to do the things that I want to do. I don't want to think, do the things that I, that I have to do. Right? We can all slip into that where it's just like, oh, I, just, I just want to be comfortable. I just want it to be easy. I just want to get the next thing. I just, I just want to get that, that boat in the garage so I can go out on weekends and then my life will be complete. Right? We're always chasing the next thing. And then when that doesn't satisfy, we go chasing the next thing thinking that that will bring satisfaction. And we're told that this is the purpose of our existence. And yet, I don't think so. I think as Christians, we have a different purpose. And if you've been following along in the series, we've, we've been tracking in Matthew, where the first week, Jesus preached a sermon on the Mount. And he talked in the Sermon on the Mount about how none of us uh, are righteous in our own works, in what we do. None of us um, can reach the standard of perfection that God requires for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. But there was one, it was the man preaching the Sermon on the Mount, who did meet that requirement, his name was Jesus, and he is righteous. And instead of trying to earn our righteousness, if we ask him for it, he gives it to us. Right? That, was, that was week one, and then week two we did the transfer, uh, transfiguration, where we went up the mount again, and we saw Jesus in all his glory as the king, and we saw that there is a kingdom coming, and that he's going to be the king in that kingdom, and that he is the only one worthy. And we got this foretaste of a kingdom that is to come. And Peter thought the kingdom was coming now, but it wasn't coming now. It's coming later. And then we hit Easter. And uh, Good Friday, we remembered that uh, Jesus died for our sins. That God is right and just to punish wrongdoing. Um, and that we deserve that for what we've done. But there was one who was a perfect sacrifice that died on our behalf. And he took the justice of God. And it's where the justice and the love of God meet is on the cross on Friday. And then we saw on last Sunday the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus didn't stay dead, that he conquered death. And uh, that we can have confidence when we die. That Jesus has gone through death. And so when it comes to our time... If we've trusted in Him for the forgiveness of sins, then we will go through death. 
and come out the other side with Jesus. And so today we're going to celebrate another miracle. The Broncos won on Friday night. Amen? Let's bow for prayer. No, um, I think we're going to look at Matthew 28 because in Matthew 28, Jesus is resurrected and you remember that uh, he wants to meet his disciples. He wants to meet up with his disciples again because last week the, when he came out of the tomb, the women were there and he told the women to tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. You remember that? And so the women were going to tell the disciples this message. And so today we're going to Galilee. And it's important because if you think about it, if we were just here, if we just existed to be saved by God and to believe in Jesus Christ, at the moment we did that, he would take us, right? If, if, if that was his purpose for our lives alone, that we would believe in Jesus and have, and, and, and have our sins forgiven, why are we still here? Right? If that's all he wanted, if that's all he had for us, if that was the end of the story, we wouldn't be sitting here. Those who have trusted, he'd just take us straight to glory. I mean, beam us right up in there at the moment we did it, but he doesn't. Right? Because Jesus has something more for us. He's got a mission for us. We're going to carry on what he started. And so Matthew 28, Jesus meets with his disciples and they go back to Galilee. And you remember... Uh, back in week one on the Sermon on the Mount, they went up a mountain in Galilee. And in verse 16 of chapter uh, 28, this is what it says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So there's 12 minus Judas. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So back to Galilee they go, where they go, where it all began. And wouldn't you know it, they go up the mountain again. And we've seen this before. It's that same mountain that Jesus preached his sermon on the mount in Galilee. And Matthew, our author, is letting us know something important here. He's telling you what Jesus is doing. Jesus wants to remind his disciples geographically about what was preached on that sermon, on that mount, that sermon that day. And so just keep that in the, the back of your minds as we, as we work through the text, because it's going to come up in a sec. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It is now that they truly recognize Jesus as more than human, as, as the God-man. The one who is fully human and fully God. The one who went to the cross but could not be held by the grave. And the appropriate response here is to worship. And some of them do that. The more surprising reaction, though, is that some doubted. What does that mean? Well, it could mean intellectual doubt. But the word there is unlikely to mean that. It's probably practical uncertainty. And if you think about it, I think this latter makes more sense because the last time that these guys saw Jesus, they were fleeing from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were abandoning him at his time of need. They ran away and disassociated themselves with the Son of God. 
And then they hear he's been resurrected and he wants to see them on the mount in Galilee. And here they come, and I'm sure they felt like we're getting called to the principal's office, right? We haven't seen him since he went to the cross. He went through this excruciating crucifixion, and we weren't there for him. And we denied him, and we, we fled. And then he's standing in front of them. Physical body. Scars in his wrists. And some of them don't know what to do. They don't know what's coming. They don't know what's going to happen. And some of them doubted. And you think Jesus might give them a dressing down. Tell them how wrong they were. How they left him. That's not what he says. Verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What the heck does that mean? Well, to understand this, we need a bit of background. To really understand this, we need to go to the largest story that is going on here that Jesus is talking about. To really understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament to really understand. And we have to go all the way back, in fact, to the garden. Because in the garden, what happened was God created a world. And in that world, He created humans. And He created beasts of the field and He created all of creation. And when He placed those uh, humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden... He said to them, this is right and wrong, right? This is what you can do. In the garden, you can eat of any tree that you want, but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? So here is good, here is evil, here is right, here is wrong. And so God gave His Word, the truth, to Adam and Eve, and they were to rule over His creation, over the animals, over the beasts of the fields. And Adam names the animals to show that He rules over them. Right? And what happens is, one of the animals, through Satan, Satan becomes a serpent, comes and he tells his words, his truth, to Eve and Adam, and they believe him. And they're contrary to God's. And Satan flips the authority structure. So all of a sudden, we have humanity sitting under Satan's rule as a serpent, and they reject God. God's rule, and God is left to the side. And so we see the authority structure is flipped, right? Then we go a little bit further in the story, and God creates a nation called Israel. And God gives them uh, His Word. He gives them His law. He gives them these, these instructions for what is right and what is wrong. And they were meant to represent God. They were meant to use these rules and represent God in a way that was a shining light to all the other nations, And they were going to rule the other nations. And so when the other nations looked at Israel and they saw that their God was different, they would see the true God of Israel. And so God says, here's my law and you will rule over the nations. But what happens? Actually, just before I get this, one of the rules that he gives is that you won't intermarry 
with foreign women. Now, that sounds harsh or mean or maybe even racist from God. But what he's saying here is that if you were to intermarry, you were going to mix with another nation and they're going to bring their gods into your family and you're going to chase after their gods. And I don't want you to do that. So you're going to marry within the nation, right? So that was one of the rules. And what happens is the nations intermarry with Israel and they do exactly what God said not to do. And they bring in their foreign gods. And Israel starts worshipping foreign gods. And they leave Yahweh. They leave the God of Israel. And once again, the authority structure is flipped. And now the nations rule over Israel and God has been rejected by Israel. And this is the scenario that we come to when Jesus enters into the story. Rome is ruling over Israel. Right, and uh, they have rejected God, even though the, the the authorities would never say that. Christ is quite clear about that when he turns up and talks to the Pharisees. And so Jesus enters into the story, and this is what's going on. We've got Rome over Israel, and God is off to the side. And in Matthew four, Jesus is taken to the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. What do you think Satan's going to try to do? He's going to try to get Jesus to act for him like he has with the serpent and with the Gentile nations. And so he comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8. This is the third temptation. It says this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So Satan shows him, here are all the nations, all the ones that Israel was meant to go to, to reveal you so that you would worship them. And I'm in charge of them at the moment. They're under my authority. They do what I tell them to. And I'll give them to you. I'll give them to you, but you have to worship me. Verse 10, And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And Jesus, unlike anyone else before him, resists the temptation of Satan. And for once, the authority structure is not reversed. You see, Jesus was, uh, Satan was offering Jesus a kingdom without a cross. A kingdom under the rulership of the one who was opposed to God. And when Jesus resists, Satan decides to do what really only he ever could do, and that is to kill him. He decides to take Jesus out. And through the rulership of Rome and Israel who are under him, Jesus is crucified. And he goes to the cross and he dies. And Satan thinks that he has done it again. But he doesn't stay dead. He's resurrected, showing that there is nothing that has authority over him. That he, in fact, is God's perfect representative and the rightful one to rule in the kingdom. Not even death itself has authority over him. He is the only one who can perfectly represent God here on earth and in heaven. 
He is the only one that has the right to rule because his will and allegiance is not to Satan, but to his Father in heaven. And it's for that reason that God the Father bestows on him the right to rule over all of heaven and all of earth. It again is the sign that there is a kingdom and Jesus is the king and he alone is fit to rule. And his kingship stands for far above local politics and far above the people of Israel. It is a universal kingship and it will last forever because he is the son of God. Okay, so back to the disciples on the mountain. And Jesus has said, all authority has been given to me over heaven and earth. Does that make a little more sense now? And you think maybe this is the time that he's going to bring the kingdom. He's, he's gone to the cross. He's been resurrected. All authority has been given to him. Surely now he brings in the kingdom, right? Nope. He gives his disciples a mission. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's right. There's a delay in the kingdom. It's not coming to fulfillment yet. Instead, the disciples are going to go and make more disciples. Not just Jewish disciples, but disciples of all the nations. Jesus says there's a delay in the kingdom and you're going to go out and do what Israel could never do. There's a new authority structure. And how are you going to disciple the nations? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism means that you, first of all, have to understand the gospel. You understand that you are a sinner. You, you fall short. You deserve death. But Jesus, the only righteous one of God, has taken your place. And in return, you get his righteousness. Does that message sound familiar? It was a sermon he preached in the exact spot that the disciples are standing right there. And Jesus becomes king. Not just king of the kingdom, king of your life. In summary, baptism is the once-off event in a believer's life identifying with Christ. As you go down into the water, you recognize your old life is gone. And your old way of doing things is done. And that, sin, that sinful life has been taken care of by Jesus on the cross. And as you come out of the water, you identify with Christ's resurrection into a new life in Christ and total repentance and allegiance to the King. But how would anyone know that unless they were taught? Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The disciples are going to teach others. What are they teaching them? They're teaching them the Sermon on the Mount. Salvation is available through the righteousness of a man who was God and your works aren't going to save you. The disciples are going to represent Christ's teaching, his message during a delay in the fulfillment of the kingdom. 
Notice the text says that to them that you are going to teach all that I have commanded you. This is really important. You see, when, when the disciples go from there, they aren't teaching their own ideas. They aren't bringing out their own philosophy of life and, and how to do things. And here's some tips and tricks for, for getting rich or growing in fame or authority. They're not teaching their stuff. They're teaching his stuff. The disciples teach not their own ideas, but what Jesus has commanded. And this continues on for us today. We continue to teach not our own stuff, our own philosophy, our own strategies. And we teach what Jesus taught. And there's a couple of things here that are really important to understand as, as we go on the discipling mission. First of all, we have to understand who the disciple maker is. See, it's easy to hear this command from Jesus to go and disciple all the nations, and we think that we are discipling people. Peter is going and discipling somebody, right? And in some sense, that can be true. But what we're really doing is we're showing somebody who the true disciple maker is. Jesus is the disciple maker, it's his words, it's his works, it's his power, it's his gospel, and he's the main character. And we show people Jesus, not ourselves. Me by myself, in my own strength, by my own works, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to give you. I might be able to come up with some words in a sermon, but if they're my own words, I have nothing of benefit for you. My goal when I stand up here is to show you Jesus' words, to show you Jesus as the person, as the Savior, as the King. My goal is to help you see Him, not me. Jesus is the disciple-maker. We bring people to Jesus, not us. Secondly, this is quite the task, wouldn't you say? You're going to disciple all the nations? That's a lot of people over a lot of geographical area. And often we hear a command like this and we're quick to roll up our sleeves and get some motivation from Sunday and think, yes, I'm going to go this week and I'm going to, going to go talk to my neighbor across the fence or I'm, I'm going to go disciple somebody this week or I'm going to finally start doing something that I've felt guilty about not doing for a long time. Right? We're very quick to take this and think that this is something that we can do by ourselves, on our own. That's not what Jesus leaves them with, though. Jesus finishes his instructions of this command with the most important thing. And it's not just the most important thing because I think it's the most important thing. The text actually tells us this is the most important thing. Because I'm going to teach you a little Greek today. There's a word in the Greek and it's an emphasis marker. And it's telling you to look here, pay attention to this. This is important and it's the word idu. If you were to transliterate it into English, you'd spell it I-D-O-U. Idu. Right? 
And it's this Greek word that we often translate, behold. And it's telling us, you need to see this. Look at this. This is important. This is the most important thing. And this is the last thing that Jesus is going to say in the book of Matthew to his disciples after he gives them this grand mission to go and reach all the nations. This is what he says. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that amazing? The Lord of heaven and earth who has all authority has promised, I'm going to be with you. You see, it is only by the presence and power of Jesus that this mission will be accomplished. It is only by the sustaining presence of Jesus that his disciples will undergo suffering for the sake of the gospel. It is only by the aiding presence of Jesus that disciples will be bold to share the gospel. It is only by the powerful presence of Jesus that others will hear and understand it. It is only by the sanctifying presence of Jesus that you become more and more like Christ. It is only by the personal presence of Jesus that you will know him better. And it's only through the returning physical presence of Jesus that the kingdom will be fulfilled. When the church began, after that mountaintop experience, at the beginning of Acts, you had a ragtag group of guys, mainly fishermen, one tax collector and a zealot, No political standing, no power, no wealth of resources, no great strategies or influence. Just 11 guys who had walked with a man who went to a cross and they claimed he came back to life. And they were started against the Jews, a fiercely stubborn and religious people who would stop at nothing if they thought that someone was making a false claim about their God. But the disciples could not stay silent about what they'd seen. So they taught about Jesus and many believed and were baptized and they joined the church. And as they grew from a speck on the radar... They came onto, Rome's, came onto Rome's awareness. The Roman Empire was the most dominant and widespread empire the world had ever known. They were iron-fisted with military control so that if anyone should disturb the peace or put a foot out of line, they were quick to squash them. Rome were polytheists. Poly meaning many, theist meaning God. They believed there were many gods and they should worship worship them all. And, And they gave credit to these gods for the success of the empire. They persecuted the Christians. Especially under the the Roman Empire Decius and later Diocletian. 
there was widespread empire-wide persecution against the Christians because as the Roman Empire began to crumble, they looked at what had changed. And there was this group that worshipped one God, monotheists. Mono meaning one, theist meaning God. And they said, that must be the reason that the empire is crumbling. We must wipe them out. We must take care of them. They must renounce this belief in, in, a, in a God named Jesus and must return to worshipping our gods so that we will be favoured and return to what we once were. And the Christians refused. They didn't deny the faith and they were tortured and they were killed. Tacitus, I mentioned him last week, he's a Roman historian. This is what he writes about Christians during the Roman Empire and what they went through. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. There's a story of of Nero that he would cover the Christians in tar and he would set them alight in his garden at night to, to illuminate it for his guests. But as time went on, the Roman Empire began to collapse and Christianity kept growing and growing. Eventually, not only just becoming legal, but the majority religion in, Rome, in the Roman Empire under Emperor Constantine. A little over 300 years it took for this to happen. I love what John Hanna writes about this. He's a church historian, and, and this is how he summarizes what has taken place in the church in those first 300 years. Stick with me. It's a rather long quote, but I think it's powerful. Who could have ever imagined a persecuted sect called the Way, this is what Christians were called originally, largely drawn from the poor, illiterate and enslaved classes would be capable of sustaining a movement that eventually would be embraced by kings and emperors. In the dark days, the Decius and Diocletian intolerance would have, been, would have thought that the church would have not only survived but triumphed. In the beginning of the era, it was a small sect at the end of the era, it was the religion of the civilized world. In the beginning, the Roman Empire was unified under a Caesar. At the end, it no longer existed in the West, yet Christianity continued to flourish. In the beginning, the Romans killed their king. At the end, kings embraced him as their resurrected and living Lord. Do you think that came about because of the efforts of men and women by their own strength? You think there's a, a group of 11 guys who concocted a plan to take down an empire with brilliant strategy and intelligence and resources and wealth and influence? No. How was it achieved? By the power and presence of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. Giving people the courage and the belief that his words and his works are true and right. 
and that it is better to lay your life down for your friends than to keep it. That there is a kingdom coming. That even if your body perishes in this one, he will resurrect you into the next. It is by Jesus' presence that this came about. Jesus starts the kingdom. Jesus has the authority of the kingdom. Jesus invites you into the kingdom. Jesus enables you to fulfill the mission of the kingdom. And Jesus one day at the end of the age will bring it to completion. And the kingdom will be here in its entirety. So please don't walk away from here feeling burdened that there's all these things that you need to do in your own strength. Because you can't. There's only one who's doing it. He's promised to do it and he'll do it through you. And the Christian life is what you do when you realize that you can really do nothing on your own. So where does this leave us? A few things to consider. Firstly, for those who have listened and followed carefully the journey through Matthew, it is only appropriate that we respond and join the 11 disciples in worship, in obedience to the Lord of heaven and earth. We talk a lot about worship here because we are born to worship. We're created to worship and we are worshiping something all the time. The question is, what is it? It could be sex, it could be money, it could be reputation, it could be comfort, it could be food, it could be climbing that societal ladder, it could be retirement. What has your allegiance more than Jesus? Secondly, you should be encouraged. Jesus is still discipling and he's still discipling you you are being discipled by jesus don't rush past that he is the one making you more like himself he hasn't stopped he's not going to he isn't putting you to the side when you fail or get things wrong like the disciples you are still his man you are still his woman he hasn't given up on you he's discipling you Thirdly, our response to Jesus and his commands is twofold. We must teach the words and works of Jesus, not our own. But remember that we are only able to accomplish this by Jesus' enabling presence through the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what that looks like for you, exactly. I can't tell you exactly how... You are to disciple others in your life, in your circumstances. The parents, you've got kids in front of you, and the way that you treat your spouse is either going to lead them towards Jesus and his words and his works or away from them. Those who are single, you have a 
an opportunity to use your time and your energy and your efforts to sow into a kingdom more so than others who have responsibilities that that you don't currently have. And you, you may be in that season for a long time or a short time, we don't know. But you've got opportunities in front of you where you can point others towards Jesus and His words and His works. And when we get things wrong, and we do, we, we go and we, we confess that to, to someone. And we ask for their forgiveness. And then when somebody does that, we forgive them because it points them towards Jesus. I don't know exactly what it looks like for you. And if you don't know, I, I would ask, I encourage you, just why don't you ask Jesus what he's got for you? Ask him, where would you have me carry on the mission? With where you've placed me and the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the opportunities that you've given me, what would it look like, Jesus? What, what would you want me to be doing for you? In Australia, in the UK, when you finish a Bible college degree or you go to seminary and you, and you finish that up or even university, what uh, marks the end of your training is, is called a graduation. But in the States, when you finish seminary, they don't call it a graduation. You know what they call it? A commencement. It's a commencement. This is not the end. It's the beginning. You've had some training, you've, you've seen what needs to be done, you've understood the message, and now it's your turn to go out and use that training. You see, this is not the end of Jesus' ministry. This is just the beginning. This is not the end of the book. Oh, sorry, while it might be the end of the book, it's not the end of the mission, it's the beginning. the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of a movement that will start in Jerusalem and go out to Judea and Samaria and out to the outermost parts of the earth. It spans thousands of years and it crosses every language, race and cultural boundary. And here we are, 2022, Toowoomba, Queensland, Australia, Restoration Church. We are part of the mission. And you are part of the mission. And Jesus has given you a mission that goes far beyond the importance and significance of accumulation before you die. There is a kingdom. There is a ministry of Jesus that we carry on that sows into that kingdom, not our own. We continue the great commission, the great commencement that Jesus tasked his disciples on that mountain in Galilee. Your purpose here is not to accumulate things. You are more than that. You have been given a task greater than that, one of more importance and significance. And as a church, our purpose is bigger than that. Will you respond to the king and build into the kingdom by bringing yourself and others to Jesus? Let's pray.
Father, I pray you'd help us to see Jesus more clearly as he is than we've ever seen him before. I pray you would help us to be convinced of the kingdom and that there is something greater to come and that our purpose and exist of existence right now is not to just build our own kingdom but to sow in to Jesus's. And he's tasked us with an awesome mission and we can't do it on our own. You haven't left us on our own. So Jesus, would you help us? Help us in our marriages to be kind to each other, to show grace to one another, to forgive one another. Help us in our parenting teach our kids the amazing news and story of Jesus and your love for us that you would send him to die. Help us uh, those who are single in a very hard and trying season to find comfort and joy in, in Jesus that others might be able to see Jesus through them. Help us as a church to carry on the mission, to not get consumed with trying to fit this building out or make it into some extraordinary thing that people can see. But may we be a church that carries on the mission of showing Jesus to the world. I pray that as people come into this place, God, they wouldn't see me, they wouldn't see Pete, they wouldn't see Tom, they wouldn't, they wouldn't see the, the, the music or, or the structure or anything there. But I, I pray they would see Jesus and that we would make him first and foremost in this place and in our hearts. Please help us to do that. We get so distracted. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. And by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.